I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic International Studies. In today's episode, we will discuss China's upcoming 20th Party Congress that will be held this fall beginning on October 16th. What should we expect and what should we look out for? Earlier this August, there was a brief pause in public appearances by President Xi Jinping with a simultaneous pause in state media reporting on Xi's activities. China's top leaders were away at their annual summer conference at Beidaihe. During these meetings, Chinese leaders discussed the progress made on the party's top priorities as well as how to best carry on from there. The Beidaihe meeting takes place only a few months ahead of China's 20th National Party Congress and will likely influence the agenda of the Party Congress. Given the conclusion of the Beidaihe meetings, what can we expect as we look forward? Joining us to discuss the upcoming Party Congress, as well as China's leadership changes, is Ling Lingwei, the chief China correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. She has been with the journal since 2008 and a China correspondent since 2011. As U.S.-China tensions grew, she was expelled from China in 2020, along with other American journalists. In 2020, she was named as a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting. Wei is also the co-author of Superpower Showdown, How the Battle Between Trump and Xi Threatens a New Cold War. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ling Ling. Thank you, Bonnie. Great to be here with you. So I know you've spent many years covering dynamics in China, particularly elite politics. So I want to spend this podcast really diving into understanding what's so important about the 20th Party Congress and what are we looking forward to. So maybe we can start off with a more background question about the importance of the Party Congress. Could you give us some notable highlights and policies from previous ones? What makes a Party Congress, and particularly the one that we're seeing now, so important? Sure, Bonnie. The Party Congress is held every five years. In recent decades, it's been where new leaders or new leaders in waiting, as well as changes to the party's constitution, are formally approved. You know, the event itself usually is highly choreographed, as the process of selecting top leaders largely takes place behind the scenes and before the Congress itself is actually convened. So the Congress just rubber stamps the arrangements already worked out by party leaders, both current and former. The first party congress was held in 1921 and was where the Chinese Communist Party was founded. That event was held in the French concession in Shanghai at the time and attended by altogether 13 delegates, including Mao Zedong, at the time the great helmsman in the making. You know, the story was that in the middle of the night, the participants had to move the venue because of fears of arrest. Uh, then the discussion continued in the nearby town of Jiaxing on a boat in the middle of a lake. Then you got the 13th Party Congress held in 1987. That was also remarkable in that it launched China into accelerated economic development and into ensuring a leadership succession as elder party members voluntarily resigned in favor of younger leaders. In recent memory, 18th Party's Congress, held in November 2012, certainly stood out 
That's where Xi Jinping was formally anointed as the party's top leader. I was covering the event back then. The congress was held in the Great Hall of the People, the Soviet neoclassical-style building located on the west side of the Tiananmen Square. You know, security that day was super tight, and all of the accredited journalists were shoved up to a sitting area on the third floor. And from there, you got a panoramic view of seven rows of Chinese leaders, past, present, and future, sitting motionless on the podium. So I remember Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping's predecessor, delivered his last political report in an hour and forty minutes. The report was peppered with repeated references to socialism with Chinese characteristics. Scientific development and the pride and the honor of the Chinese people, and you heard occasional rounds of applause from the thousands of Communist Party delegates sitting in the Great Hall, especially when Hu Jintao raised his voice while touching on very important issues like the fight against corruption and China's sovereignty. So the Congress, the 18th Party's Congress, proceeded as planned, but there's a bit of drama the next day. When the newly elected Central Committee had its first plenary session, basically to finalize the Politburo and the whole list of the Holy, which is the Politburo Standing Committee, so all of the journalists, you know, were told a press appearance would appear at 11 a.m. that day. But Xi Jinping and the other six members of the Standing Committee were more than an hour late in showing up. It's not until much later that we found out what caused the delay. So just before she and the others made the press appearance, there was a gathering of the party's most senior leaders, both past and present. At the gathering, Hu Jintao, Xi's immediate predecessor, announced his decision to relinquish all his positions: president, Communist Party chief, top military official. You know, rather than clinging to one of those titles as his predecessor Jiang Zemin had done. You know, based on what we learned later, who basically told the gathering at the time, quite emphatically that. After I retire, I absolutely won't interfere with the next generation of leadership. So that's quite a surprise、uh, action by Hu Jintao, often seen as this bland、uh, figurehead, and that. Event really helped pave the way for Xi Jinping to assert control and consolidate power in the years ahead. Thank you for that very informative history.、Uh, in particular, some of the more interesting points leading up to the upcoming twenty-party congress. So you mentioned that most of the party congress is scripted with decisions made behind the scenes and privately beforehand. So that brings me to this year's Beidahe meeting. Do you know what topics were covered? What is your sense of what happened from those meetings? Obviously, details of any top-level internal discussions are never disclosed. But based on what the government has disclosed so far, including the official readout from the last Politburo meeting at the end of last month, is conceivable that the leaders put finishing touches on the leadership appointments. At Beidaihe, and decided on the major policy priorities to be unveiled at the party congress or soon after that.
it's especially notable that you know when the top leaders, including Xi Jinping and the Premier Li Keqiang, emerged from Beidaihe, the Premier Mr. Li he took a trip to Shenzhen. While Xi Jinping went to visit the northern Liaoning province, the contrast couldn't be sharper, Bonnie. With one going all the way south, right, the cradle of China's economic reform, and the other going all the way north, the old Chinese industrial base. But in a way, the message, in particular from Li Keqiang's sudden trip, might also be that what the premier is advocating was adopted by the top leadership at their Beidaihe gathering. We know Li Keqiang represents the more pragmatic and technocratic side of the party leadership. He's been sidelined for most of the past decade, and only this year. He's regained the mandate of managing the economy. We have seen in the past few months he's tried very hard to differentiate his policies with a more focused on economic development from those of Xi Jinping's that are more politically driven, like the zero COVID policy. And during his Shenzhen trip, Li paid respect to Deng Xiaoping's statue and vowed not to deviate from the road of reform and opening up, which basically is a policy that was put in place by Deng Xiaoping in late 1978. Of course, Xi Jinping said similar things in the past, but these days there's this growing doubt in China over whether the party will continue to focus on economic development, especially after what she has done. Namely, putting politics ahead of everything else. So this gesture by Li Keqiang seems to imply that his economic-centric policy agenda has been endorsed somewhat by the top leadership and will be somewhat reflected in the policy priorities going forward. And maybe just to follow up on this, I mean, you portrayed a very contrasting trip—one to the south, one to the north. Do you see the two leaders,、uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, working well together? Until recently, Li Keqiang had been sidelined. What caused him to, I guess, be less sidelined now than before?、Uh, what has happened this year is this gathering economic gloom, right?、Uh, we haven't seen Chinese economy in such bad shape in recent decades. What has happened since early this year is increased economic pressure in China as a result of、uh, Xi Jinping's campaign last year, right, to move China further away from a capitalist economy and more like socialist economy, and also his zero COVID policy. So China's economy really is in the worst shape it has been in years. So Li Keqiang kind of、uh, you know tap the kind of a、uh, economic pressure and also growing levels of discontent within the party and to wrestle back some of the power he has lost in years past to Xi Jinping, namely the management of the economy, and you know people might ask what's the evidence of that, you know. One big evidence is、um, the fact that he,、uh, meaning Li Keqiang, has helped、uh, 
pull back some of Xi's policies. Uh, we know based on what we know about Xi Jinping and his personality, his governing style, we know he's not predisposed for power sharing. For the past 10 years, he's made himself chairman of everything, taking personal charge of the economy. He is not going to just, you know, okay, now it's time for you to run the economy. I can handle something else. He's, that's not his style. There has had to be some kind of pressure, right, for him to give up a, such a big job, right, to finally delegating, at least for now, that job to Li Keqiang. In recent months, we have seen, based on reporting, that Li Keqiang helped dial back some of the Xi's policies, including this near-blanket crackdown private tech sector, um, and also, you know, put a stop on the, you know, very harsh restrictions that were put in place last year on property developers, um, and also really be out there, you know, push so hard and be out there uh, telling entrepreneurs and trying to rebuild their confidence in the economy. And so far this year, Li Keqiang has held more than five or six very high-level conferences just focused on the economy, you know, that never happened in years past. You see very high-level officials, including Liu He, the vice premier, also Xi Jinping's right-hand economic man, now having also to go to those conferences, meetings convened by Li Keqiang and sitting there listening to him talk and even reporting to him, you know, what's going on in the financial sector. So you, you do see this kind of interesting shift in internal power dynamics. That's basically why we're saying that process that has uh, taken place for Li to regain some of the power. But of course, Li is going to retire because there are still are term limits uh, on the premier, right? What Li is doing now, partly because he really wants to shore up his legacy as premier, making sure that he has done his job to help prop up the economic growth. On the other hand, another thing Li Keqiang is trying to do is to influence the decision on his who his successor's premier is in uh, Xi Jinping's next term. That's a good segue to a follow-on question on personnel shifts uh, as we move into the 20-party Congress. Maybe we can start with on the economic side. Do you have a sense of who might, for example, take up the role of Li Keqiang in terms of helping to set China's economic policy? Or is it multiple people, not just one person, assuming that role? So for the past decade, we have witnessed Xi Jinping's rise consolidation of power and use of all that power. But since late last year, what's become clear is that there are also limits to his power, especially as evidenced by the economic backlash he has faced in implementing his visions. In particular, his campaign in 2021 was aimed at returning China to be this more socialist spirit of Mao Zedong's and the crackdown on the big private firms, the common prosperity drive that make the rich and wealthy feel unsafe because fears that they will have to hand over their fortunes to the government. So against that backdrop, we talked about earlier, Premier Li Keqiang since this year has has exerted greater control 
over the management of the economy as his term as premier nears its end. In recent months, you know, he has, um, you know, helped dial back some of Xi's policies and also has been trying to influence the decision on who his successor will be. So we'll know for sure if he's successful in a couple of months. You know, who is the next premier is important because it will impact the policy direction of the country going forward. You know, Lee for sure wants someone in a position who shares his belief that Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening policy will be upheld and economic development will continue to be a focus of the party. It will also be interesting to see if Li Keqiang himself retires completely from the standing committee or moves to another position. He's 67 years old and hasn't really reached the uh, implied retirement age for senior officials. Who is going to be the next executive vice premier is also something to be on the lookout for. The executive vice premier has a pretty important portfolio that includes the housing market, various reform agendas, and the big state sector. We also have reported in this year that one of senior economic officials deeply trusted by Xi Jinping, you know, He Lifeng, you know, who now has the big uh, national. Commission for Reform and Development in the RC is tipped for promotion in the next leadership lineup. So if that happens, he might also get a pretty important role in terms of uh, managing the financial sector, the industrial tax sector. So he for sure is someone deeply trusted by Xi Jinping. But the question is, over the past 10 years, she has made it very clear that the party is in charge of everything. So state council, i.e. the government side, you know, has been downgraded a lot in terms of running the economy. So it will be also interesting to see whether or not going forward, and as he goes into his third term, whether or not he will continue that kind of, uh, you know, party controlling everything agenda set up or, you know, delegating any of that responsibility to the government. Another key question in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, uh, what we should be on the lookout for in terms of any changes in Chinese governance and because that will affect policymaking going forward as well. Thank you. I do want to also follow up on what you might see as major personnel shifts on the political side. Uh, so you mentioned um, Premier, Executive Vice Premier. What, what about broadly uh, in terms of foreign policy? Any new insights or um, deep insights on who might, for example, replace Yang Jiechi or Wang Yi? Um, whatever you can share on that end would be greatly, I think, appreciated by many of our listeners. Well, one name that has come up repeatedly during our conversations with contacts in Beijing is Liu Jieyi, you know, this uh, veteran diplomat uh, who had served as China's ambassador to the UN, um, and he's now head of uh, Beijing's Taiwan Affairs Office. The talk is uh, he is tipped for a top foreign policy position in Xi Jinping's third term. Um, you know, Liu Jieyi, his portfolio right now is Taiwan Affairs, which has great growing importance in terms of, uh, you know, China's relationship 
relations with the rest of the world. So it would make a lot of sense if he gets picked for a very senior, more senior foreign policy role. So Liu Jieyi wrote an article in July in the People's Daily. That article outlined a framework for resolving the Taiwan issue. In the article,、uh, he pledged to quote unquote. Resolutely crack down on Taiwan independence separatist acts, peaceful reunification, as its basic principle when it comes to the Taiwan issue. Again, you know, didn't renounce the use of force. That card article has been widely seen in Beijing as authoritative, and might set a tone for whatever. Passage on Taiwan. It will be as part of the big policy report to be unveiled at the Twentieth Party Congress. Is there any chance that Wang Yi may stay on? I don't know. <laughs> the short answer is that I don't know. We definitely have heard speculations that he might be staying on, but just don't know. Some folks talk about Ambassador Qinggang taking a higher position in the Chinese Foreign Ministry. Is there any truth to that potential? Ah,、uh, Qinggang has had a very difficult job ever since he's been appointed as China's ambassador to Washington. Obviously, he's deeply trusted by Xi Jinping. His U.S. experience certainly beefed up his resume quite a lot. You know, I I don't know for sure if、uh, he's in line for promotion so soon after you know, his appointment as his ambassador. But it's certainly likely he's certainly a rising star and someone you know trusted、uh, by Xi Jinping that that counts a lot. So Lingling, you mentioned a number of male candidates. Are there any female candidates that could be rising to senior leadership positions in China? You know that's、um, really the very sad truth, right? Chinese party leaders,、uh, ever since Mao Zedong, they like to talk about women holding up、uh, half the sky. But when you look at you know the makeup of the power structure. Hardly see any women whatsoever. There's this one senior local official in the western province of Guizhou. You know her name has been bandied about for woman candidate for the Politburo position, potentially succeeding Sun Chunlan, the current vice premier, overseeing the whole COVID effort. Other than that, I haven't heard any other women in line for promotion. But there is this former spokeswoman at the foreign ministry. Her name is Hua Chunying. You know, she recently just got promoted, and again, you know, she's someone、uh, the party leadership is grooming for even more important foreign affairs job down the road. Definitely, in terms of Hua, I I think most of us noticed that when Russia invaded Ukraine, she was put out. To be the spokesperson on those critical days when there's major key developments, it seems like China defers to her to be taking at least a voice of、uh, the foreign ministry. Exactly, when in crisis, you bring out the big gun, right, so to speak, or you bring out the female to show China has a more softer side to <laughs> to its policies, to its harder policies. Well, that's another explanation. I do want to follow up a little bit about、um, how do you see China's foreign policy changes or general economic policy changes that may accompany 
the leadership changes. So you mentioned, for example, on the economic side, that there is efforts from both ends to see who might replace Li Keqiang. Do you have a sense moving forward? Will the personnel really determine the specific policies, or are there some policies that are already in place? That regardless of who might come in, we might not see two major changes either way. Sure,、uh, that's a great question. You know, in China, politics really drives the economy. Given how much emphasis Xi Jinping has put on politics, it is very hard to imagine that you know a different premier, a different executive vice premier, would make a huge difference to China's. Economic policy making, but maybe more realistic question nowadays is that, you know, for the immediate future, if any kind of pragmatism will return to China's economic policy making, right? We have seen some dialing back of Xi's. Uh, economic policy agenda like common prosperity under the influence of Premier Li Keqiang, are we going to see more actions like that? So that's a more fitting and realistic question in the near future. In the sentiment,、uh, especially the kind of sentiment in the private sector in China these days, remains very depressed despite you know Li Keqiang's efforts to try to rebuild confidence. You know, I was talking to、uh, entrepreneur just the other day. You know, he was saying that yeah, we have seen a lot of talks, a lot of desire to help the private sector, but we really haven't seen any concrete action being taken by the government to help us. So. You know that really shows how low the sentiment has become. It also depends on whether the state council, i.e., the government,、uh, overall will regain any decision-making power when it comes to the economy. One of my favorite stories about uh, Xi's uh, consolidation of power, almost immediately after he rose to power in late. Ah,、uh, twenty twelve. He downgraded the role of the premier Li Keqiang. Xi's predecessor Hu Jintao had backed Li Keqiang as his successor rather than Xi Jinping himself. So for nearly two decades in China, the premier was responsible for managing the economy. As soon as he came to power, Xi Jinping kind of hinted. At his plans to assume that responsibility, it was at a meeting in early two thousand thirteen. You know,、uh, with Vice Premier Ma Kai at the time, Zhongnan Hai. Right, there are two different areas of Zhongnan Hai. Ah,、uh, the compound that houses the office of the party, and another compound that houses the office of the government, the State Council. So, um. You know,、uh, then Xi Jinping called in this vice premier at the time, Ma Kai, and asked him whether he thought the party, meaning people like Xi, or the government, meaning the state council and the people like the premier, had been more effective in running the economy. And Ma Kai replied, "The northern courtyard." Referring to the section of the Zhongnan Hai compound that houses the city council, and then Xi Jinping responded, "I don't necessarily think so." 
So ever since then, Xi Jinping kind of has gradually taken control of managing the economy. You know, we have seen him getting his own economic advisor Liu He. You know, get him to map out the country's economic policy, essentially preempting the premier. And especially in two thousand twenty-one, the whole year, the central、uh, party office that directly reporting to Xi really issued one、uh, directive after another. You know, instructing how different regulators should work together to regulate、uh, the tech, private tech sector. It would be really interesting to see that in his next term, division of power between the party and the government when it comes to economic management that was in place for the past twenty years before Xi Jinping came to power, whether or not that kind of division of labor, division of power, would return at all. What signs would we be watching for if we do see the division of power returning? What would we be looking for? Is it just the Personnels that would be, for example, in Li Keqiang's position, or are there other things that we should look for? You know, obviously, you know, policy announcements, meetings, you know, any signs of meetings increasingly getting convened by the state council and things getting done. Definitely, there are things that we can watch for any kind of changes, if at all. A lot of people are not optimistic for that whole that kind of scenario happening. You know, for good reasons. Ah,、uh, but we shall see. So, what about the changes on the political side and foreign policy side? Do you expect any major changes there either? So, competition with the U.S. will continue to dominate Xi Jinping's foreign policy going forward. And you know, many experts have written articles and given talks about how they expect Xi to become even more ambitious and assertive. When it comes to foreign policy in his third term, and I do agree with that, Xi Jinping is fundamentally a skeptical of the advanced、uh, democratic countries, especially the U.S. Once his position is secure, he will continue his policy to compete and confront the U.S. going forward. It, it's very hard to see any kind of relaxation or loosening. In terms of the current very firm and strong stance against the U.S. Thank you. So, Lingling, I was super、uh, intrigued by your discussion of Li Keqiang and how he has, in some ways, been able to resist Xi Jinping's tendencies on the economy. So, as we move into Xi's third term and after he consolidates his power at the Twentieth Party Congress, from your perspective, are there still significant checks on Xi's power, whether that's on the political, foreign policy side or economic side? How do we tell if there are checks on Xi's power or not? We have already seen those checks, however limited, in action over the past few months. Common prosperity, for example, Xi's agenda, was everywhere last year. Everybody was talking about that. Every newspaper in China was touting that. This year, it has been rarely mentioned by either the state media or various levels of government because of the economic pressure. Chinese leaders do course correct, but the mechanism to do that obviously is very different from the kind of mechanisms that are in place in countries like the United States and other democratic countries. But there are certain mechanisms. 
for example, the state council, despite the fact that their power has been weakened a lot over the past 10 years, but there are certain things they do do, like routine inspections, economic inspections around the country. Normally, we'll file up reports based on their inspections and basically feedback to the top leadership and give them a sense of how good or how bad things are on the ground. If all those reports say that, oh, things really are bad, you know, people are saying how things are really hurting their businesses or, you know, investments and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff gets sent up to the top leadership. And you still do have other competing political figures in the top leadership. And then they will take advantage of that kind of feedback and use that to press for certain kind of policy changes. Despite the fact that she has become so powerful and will remain in the office you know, for many years to come, but those different voices still do exist. And, you know, sometimes they do make a difference to policy. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about course correction within China. And I have to wonder, is course correction easier for economic issues because you have actual hard indicators of performance? Whereas if she was pushed to course correct on foreign policy, you don't have, for example, the same sort of evaluation of his foreign policy or the same set of information coming from provinces or locales or businesses on his foreign policy. I mean, you laid out that it's definitely still possible for other Chinese leaders to help Xi course correct on economic issues. But do you think that's possible for Xi Jinping on foreign policy issues too? That's a great question. You're absolutely right. Is it easier to course correct economic policy? Because for the party overall, economic development is still very much important for them because you know their legitimacy still very much relies on the fact that they continue to deliver prosperity to the Chinese population, increased living standards. In terms of foreign policy, much harder because you know you can always um, you know bring out the nationalism card. I, I just remember when I was covering the trade war, um, you know, a lot of things the U.S. side were asking China to do back then, less reliance on state-led industrial policy. Um, a lot of those things were actually in China's interest, something China's reformers or reform-minded officials had argued for years. However, it's just so difficult for them, for meaning the uh, reform-minded officials in China, to make a pitch to the top leaderships and say, let's do this, without making them look like traitors or kowtowing to the U.S. demands. So once you inject nationalism and politics and ideological purity into all those arguments, you know, it's very hard to course correct. And foreign policy really is one area that has seen the biggest difficulty. For example, you know, when it comes to China's alignment with Russia, obviously not everyone is on board with that. You know, a lot of people are concerned that such close partnership with Moscow, you know, will hurt China's own interests, especially given how intertwined China's economic interests are with the U.S. and the 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 rest of the Western world. So given all these changes and dynamics that you just outlined, 
How do you see the 20th Party Congress impacting U.S.-China relations? Are you optimistic as things move forward? Are you relatively pessimistic uh, about U.S.-China relations? How do you balance the potential that China could economically course correct, at least to some degree, versus its lack of ability to course correct our foreign policy? What does that mean for U.S.-China relations? It's really hard to be optimistic about the relationship between the U.S.-China these days. You know, wait and see the final outcomes in terms of.、Uh, Leadership appointments. There are any changes in policy agendas going forward? Thank you very much, Ling, for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. 